0: Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS, routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, Jay Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is the Common Health. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Yanzon Wang from Seton Hall University, a close friend, a member of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security, a partner over the last three years in a working group on China and U.S. and exploring the possibilities of cooperation with China. Yanzan, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Well, Steve, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Zong is a professor in the Seton Hall University School of Diplomacy and International Relations. He's been there two decades. He directs the school's Center for Global Health Studies, which examines global health issues from a foreign policy and security perspective. He's a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, and we see a good deal of him here in Washington, D.C. for CFR work and for our own work here. And he's the founding editor of the journal Global Health Governance, the scholarly journal for the new health security paradigm. They're very impressive and a terrific colleague and prodigious output. Yanzong, I want to talk today principally about China. One of the propositions that you put forward in your recent work, this publication from the Council on Foreign Relations, the report, Negotiating Global Health Security Priorities for U.S. and Global. Governance of Disease. This is a Council on Foreign Relations report that you and Rebecca Katz co-authored. I had a chance to participate in some of the sessions, a very impressive, very comprehensive piece of work. One of the main goals that you lay out in that study is that your argument is the United States as a matter of policy should prioritize mitigating geopolitical tensions and particularly with China, not exclusively. But China gets the biggest emphasis. And you make the proposition in the course of the study to say that there was a catastrophic impact during COVID of this clash between the U.S. and China that continues to this day over the controversy of the origins of COVID-19. You had this clash that started in 2020. It fueled distrust. It fueled disinformation. It squeezed and compromised WHO and it got caught in the middle in various ways. There were disruptions to supply chains and that this was really a departure from Cold War patterns where global health cooperation was somewhat apart from these geopolitical tensions. Now it was at the very center and that's had this profoundly disruptive, alienating impact. Did I get that right? I want you to say a bit more about the challenge we face, because what you do suggest is that this is really a big challenge right now, and we should
1: understand it as such and make it a priority. Well, oh, absolutely, diversity. first of all, thank you for serving at the advisory committee for the report, you know, which we assembled a really stellar group of experts, you know, to provide feedbacks, the advice, you know, on the writing of the report. We're writing the report. It's about this general, right? The global health security issues. It's not specific about China, but we did have China in mind, you know, when we talk about threats we are facing, the need to close the global health governance gaps, the policy recommendations. In particular, I think this is something you know, that is sort of unique about the report that we highlight the geopolitical rivalries, right? The need to mitigate that harmful effect of geopolitical competition, right? Because we noticed that during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, rather than having a pandemic, a coolness, this global collective action against COVID-19, We saw the countries basically took the state-centric approach, right? That is especially the case we talk about the two countries, U.S. and China. Their size, their significance in the global health security should encourage them to work together in coping with a common enemy. But the opposite is true, right? The the COVID-19 actually set the two countries further apart. Not only there was no real cooperation between the two, but we didn't even see any serious government-to-government dialogue on issues, you know, that was so important to global health security, issues like supply chain resilience by the international travel, and also issues like disinformation, misinformation. So we propose that, especially for the United States, China should pursue a global health detour. And for the United States, both countries, actually, but we should not allow this geopolitical rivalry to dictate whether and how cooperation should be conducted between China and the United States. You know, basically decisions on addressing right the global health challenges ongoing in the future ought to be based on independent expert driven advice rather than influenced by geopolitical considerations, you know, so we often talk about a one health approach that I think it should not just cut across boundaries of animal, human and environmental health, but also we should transcend this geopolitical rivalries.
0: Song, let me play devil's advocate a little bit. In our working group, we've advocated for a detente approach to try and say, okay, let's set aside. We may have outstanding differences of view and continued uncertainty and controversy around the origins of COVID and what happened in Wuhan and what happened at that institute. That may remain sort of a frozen conflict of sorts, but we need to look beyond that, not Ignore it, but we've got bigger interests at stake to have that meltdown that happened during COVID to stop everything in its tracks. I understand that, but I would also kind of counterpose a couple of other things to think about that are gonna make a detente a little bit more problematic. One is obviously we're in a world of three geostrategic crises at this moment. We have the Ukraine war not going well, Uncertain implications around the sustainability of the U.S. and European support of the Ukraine and what happens with Putin's calculations as we get into the winter. Second, obviously, what we're having now is the China Taiwan Straits threat. And we're heading into January, the elections in Taiwan, January 13th. People are sitting on the edge of their seats. What might happen there? Third, obviously, Israel. Hamas, Gaza, Palestine, the war in Gaza, prospects of widening of that war in the West Bank, in the boundary areas, Hezbollah, Lebanon. We've got what's happening in the Bab mandab Straits with attacks, proxy attacks, Houthi attacks and the like. So we've got a very difficult situation in which, you know, the intensity of the tensions between ourselves and China have not eased much. We can talk a bit about the Xi Biden Summit and the warming and the stabilization that was attempted there. But we also have another dimension, which is what's happened in the House of Representatives, which is the Republicans coming to power, the creation of the Select Committee under Congressman Mike Gallagher, a Republican from Wisconsin, the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party and the other select committee on the coronavirus pandemic, both of which have put a huge focus on China and its partnerships between the US and putting a lot of scrutiny over the relationship and a new set of expectations and the like. And both countries are putting in force new laws around espionage and data and the like, which is also creating a certain fear and apprehension there. So you have a lot of things happening that don't really bode well for our argument around detente. So what does that mean? Does this mean you're arguing, stay the course, but be patient, take the long view, look for specific openings where you could demonstrate that even amidst all of this adversity, That there's still the possibility for the two countries to sort of see it in their best interest to do more. That's a long-winded question. I apologize. But back over to you, Yunzang. What's the strategy that might keep a detente as a live matter? Well,
1: I think, and I totally agree with you, right? That, you know, when we talk about the geopolitical tensions, not just about China, right? That you have this multiple geopolitical challenges, you know, that seems to be shifting attention away, you know, from like the US-China cooperation over global health issues. And in the meantime, you have domestic politics issues, right? That we're seeing what seems to be in both countries, this tendency to scrutinize any potential Right, bilateral cooperation, including, right, the health security. You know, from uh, like uh, this lens of, you know, national security, we call it securitization, right? Even like sharing the samples, right? The the genetic materials now viewed from a national security point of view. That makes it extremely difficult now for two countries to conduct any meaningful cooperation or collaboration. Well, that being said, I don't think, you know, that's so prohibiting, right? That this political atmosphere is that prohibiting that makes any cooperation impossible, right? And we have to be strategic start with something easy, start with something less sensitive, Right. The, the issues like environmental health, the antimicrobial resistance, this kind of issues, you know, then we expand the scope to issues that are more substantial, substantive, you know, and more like relevant to global health issues. You know, so this is why we talk about this, you know, proposed attract 1.5 dialogue this is so important because, you know, it involves a mix of both non-government actors and government actors, including senior health officials from both sides to talk about issues that are of interest to both countries that I think will hold the promise of, you know, rebuilding a foundation of communication and possibly trust that will allow us to move on to the discussion of more important and substantive issues.
0: That's very helpful to see that there are certain categories of issues that are not as politicized and inflamed, or maybe that's the doorway in. Still trying to get senior ranks of both governments to the table. I think our proposition all along has been, we're not there to do what's already happening in many different fora, which is track two dialogues where you have university folks meeting other university folks, or you have corporate folks talking to other corporate folks, or you have philanthropies talking to other philanthropies. We're talking about having senior ranks of government officials from both sides at the table with others present, right? That's what we've been pushing for. That does not happen right now. But that gets me to another question, which is, in talking to senior ranks of this administration, the Biden administration, the distinction they draw now is to say, under the current circumstances, we believe that technical cooperation can and should continue, but we don't see ministerial level cooperation going forward. And. I take that to mean that if CDC is talking to China CDC officials, or there are these kind of FDA talking to regulatory agencies in China, sort of sectoral, technical experts who are continuing to collaborate in various ways. That continues. But to step it up to a ministerial level where you have senior policymakers at the table, the current circumstances are not going to permit that. What's your thought on that? Because that comes through to me loud and clear. As I've talked to people after the APEC summit and after President Xi and President Biden met, there was very little indication that they had a shared will to renew close senior level cooperation on health. It was kind of absent from the declarations, which I was very surprised because just a year before at the G20 in Bali, they had said, let's revitalize the cooperation in climate and in health.
1: This time around, it wasn't there. What's going on, do you think? Well, you know, first of all, I understand this need maybe to separate technical dialogue. It's a ministerial level one, because this politicization, you know, health issues in both countries. But, you know, we also know, right, that many of those issues you have to be addressed by the higher level in order to have effective, meaningful cooperation. For example, let's talk about sample sharing, right? We know how important that is to global health security, right? During the pandemic, China did share the the genetic sequence of the COVID virus, but not the samples, right? And now, if you have to only allow the, the technical dialogue on this issue, it's not going to go anywhere without this political commitment to encourage a higher level cooperation. And the second, I also can't understand, as you correctly pointed out, you know, why we have already agreed to operationalize all these working group mechanisms, right? For economic and financial matters, countering uh, narcotics, including fentanyl, right? The precursor issue, enhancing climate action, addressing regional and maritime issues, but why we are not interested in setting up a working group mechanism for global health. What's the answer to that, Yenzong? Maybe we've already answered it. We've maybe already answered that. But this, you know, certainly we talk about the politicization, right? Domestic politics is not good. I would also add, you know, this lack of ambiguity regarding what would be the lead agency for cooperating with China, right? On the U.S. side, for example, we have all these potential candidates, including the National Security Council Directorate on Health, Security and Biodefense, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, the White House Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response, and the State Department uh, through the newly created Bureau of Global Health Security and Diplomacy. And if you look at the Chinese side too, they face similar bureaucratic coordination challenges, right? Several key ministries are involved in potential cooperation with the United States over public health issues, including, of course, the National Health Commission, but also the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Science and Technology. You know, even though the most we call the Ministry of Science Technology and Ministry of Foreign Affairs are interested right, in the dialogue, they lack the necessary technical expertise. The National Health Commission that possess the expertise, but the leadership seems to be uh, disinterested in working with the United States, especially we consider maybe the leader himself in poor health. Uh, So I think that would be wrong. But certainly, I think the most important, I believe, is the lack of political will. On the US side, you know, certainly there's concern about elections, right? The the Biden administration, you know, try to avoid maybe touching upon you know this health security issue could because of the, the political concern. But I also sense that the administration seems to be accustomed to defining by partnerships in global health, you know, based on the so-called like-mindedness or ideology. They probably found it increasingly challenging to step outside its comfort zone and engage with a geopolitical rival like China. And on the Chinese side, I sensed some support for the dialogue. But again, on the Xi-Biden summit, the health security absent from these key areas, you know, that were identified for promoting and initiating working-level consultations. This is just my hypothesis, you know, this in psychological terms, this term called avoidance, right? That is, there's people, they have experienced a traumatic event, they tend to develop these coping mechanisms, you know, that... uh, deliberately avoids discussing, thinking or engaging with memories of a traumatic past as a way to reduce anxiety or distress associated with that memory. And of course, for President Xi, who has invested so much, right, including his political stature on pandemic response that turned out to be disastrous, I think he might be more inclined to distance himself from the issue of pandemic preparedness, you know, not to mention talking to the United States on health security, what inevitably bring up the issue of transparency, right? information sharing, and such openness is contrary to the increasingly secretive nature of the authoritarian regime. Right. And I think
0: what you've put your finger on, too, is that there's an understandable skepticism in the United States, in the U.S. government, around what are we going to get? Right. I mean, if the U.S. government entered at a high level, this kind of track 1.5, they'll immediately invite attack from certain senators and certain members of the House. And as you say, who's going to lead this, right? Is it going to be General Friedrichs at the White House? Is it going to be the newly arrived head of NIH, uh, Monica Bertagnoli? Is it going to be John Nkengazon, newly arrived as an assistant secretary rank head of a new bureau? I don't know. I just, I'm skeptical that those folks, these are new leaders coming into place who are very important leaders in our global health. And after a period of the departure of Francis Collins, the departure of Tony Fauci, there was a period, you know, the departure of Asi Shah, there was a period in which there was a void, a gap and there was a weakening of leadership. And we're moving into this next phase of leadership in the midst of our presidential electoral cycle. And these people are finding their footing and they're all very competent and they have to make some choices, and I'm not sure that picking up the China piece is the first thing they're going to think is 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 well advised. Particularly if they're being sort of steered away from that from those that control U.S. China policy, who are at the NSC and and at State.
1: Yeah, this is a very interesting dynamic, right? Because if compared with the Trump administration, right, that they will refused to, you know, have a conversation with the Chinese because right, they didn't want, uh, you know, it to be used as a propaganda for the uh, Chinese government, by the Chinese government. But now, right, the Biden administration, this seems to be a less of a concern, but they're concerned about that this could invite attack from the Congress, especially, right, the the hogs, the, the China hogs. But, you know, I found it interesting, right, that, that we, did, right? They have set up all this working group mechanisms with China, right? Having this working level consultations with China, issues like climate, issues like, uh, you, know, you know, the, the uh, trade and economic matters. How come we didn't worry that much about, right? The, the attack from the Congress? Why do we like so concerned about, right? Starting conversation with China, global health, that is going to invite attack from the Congress
0: have you been able to follow what came out of that did anything emerge that suggests that at least in that kind of forum that there's the possibility of in a multilateral setting having greater u.s china cooperation we're at the intersection of climate and health that's one thing to think about you mentioned in your report with rebecca that we shouldn't give up on the g20 even though g20 has been compromised terribly by the ukraine war and russia's invasion and the tensions with China. It still functions and maybe there's still something there. The APEC summit yielded very little on the way of health. It did restore the functionality of what's called the regulatory harmonization steering committee which is a, co-chaired by the US and Japan and it had suspended its work for 2 years because the Chinese objected. But in this case there's quiet assent by the Chinese let's get that committee back up and running which in as a matter of course, I mean, the greater cooperation around regulatory harmonization would be very important. And maybe that's how it happens under an APEC umbrella. So there are the, some of these multilateral areas where maybe we should be f- focusing a little more.
1: Well, yeah, it's uh, I, I think uh, actually in the report we talk about, right, the embed, right, the the health diplomacy in multilateralist frameworks, you know that uh, you know the G twenty is certainly a very important venue, right? Because right, uh, the uh, way you have, you know, this health diplomacy nested in G twenty, you know, the U S. China competition of global leadership, you know, could be channeled in a more in a sort of less threatening manner. Uh, and also allow the countries, right, to talk about things they both are interested in, climate action, certainly, but also, uh, global health issues, you know. So, uh, cause if you look at, like, China's vaccine diplomacy during the COVID-19 pandemic, which is more, Mostly by right, the bilateral means. They did contribute to COVAX, but they only in a symb- symbolic manner, right? So, you know, that, that vaccine diplomacy by right, through bilateral means, you know, actually exacerbated geopolitical tension between the US and China, right? So China's efforts perceived by the US, you know, as efforts to project soft power to increase geopolitical influence, right? So the US launched its own vaccine diplomacy through bilateral means like providing vaccines to Vietnam or what we call the minilateralist approach. That is the quote, right? Working with India, Australia and Japan, you know, increasing vaccine production and distribution in Asia, you know, and and this is just an example of how whether traditional approach of handling right global health issues do not work you know we have to right you know find new ways you know to uh, encourage right the, the the cooperation right between the two countries
0: before we run out of time i want to i want to focus a little bit on the private sector in health i mean the president Xi finds himself in a corner economically right the the economy's not rebounded as predicted. The the hangover effects of the zero COVID, the costs were enormous, borne largely by municipalities, county governments and the like. It's been a huge burden. You've got all these other economic factors that are dragging things. So he's in a bit of a bind. He met in San Francisco for dinner with a group of very prominent American CEOs. Reportedly, those CEOs left thinking, There wasn't a whole lot said to reassure American CEOs of the commitment to having expanded involvement in China in a fruitful way where people would, you know, we've got problems with detentions of people in the consulting business. We have issues around data and the like. So my read was that, yes, he's under pressure. He's trying to stabilize the relationship, make it a little warmer. He wants to re- reassure CEO, keep American corporate entities engaged, but didn't really take it to a step that would have suggested, a, okay, we're going to see renewed confidence in moving forward in this area. It's quite the opposite. So while we've got these clinical trials going on, and we have you know, a need for, on the health side, continued partnerships – With the private sector and with university-based research and development issues, those are going to be very important drivers into the future. It seems to me that it's just a cloud that of uncertainty
1: that continues to hang over that proposition. What's your thoughts? I think you're absolutely right. Right, this is you know, well, in part because of this the COVID pandemic and China's by the the draconian approach by the, the this pandemic response, China is now facing. Economic slowdown. I right? I think the key question here is how big the policy space is, right? That allow the Chinese economy to rebound, right? You know now, you know they we have, you know the uh, many of the investment banks, right, including also also international organizations sort of. Uh, uh, adjusted down, right, the, the forecast on the future economic growth, you know, even though, right, IMF, you know, seems to be a little bit more positive, you know, optimistic about China's the short-term economic growth. But if you look at, right, the, this this sort of long-term growth, it was also not that optimistic, you know. So seeing, right, that, that China very likely becomes the largest economy, its advantage of the U.S., you know, might be, Modest, right? If you consider the fact, uh, right, uh, that this policy space issue in the country, right, President Xi, I think the biggest problem when we talk about the whether this policy space, you know, for robust economic growth, is this sort of, you know, shifting, right, policy struct shift in policy structural right? more toward national security uh so it is this there seems to me uh less concern about economic prosperity and more right, concern about national security in china that is why we saw release of this anti espionage law right that is the uh, uh at the time when the country was you know saying, you know, we still welcome the foreigners to come, you know, we uh, still stick to that uh, reform and open up agenda. Uh, uh So they have this policy incoherence problem. I think, you know, that would be uh, 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 one of the major impediments for future economic growth. I uh, think in the, on the positive side, right, that this economic slowdown, you know, the altered power dynamics, you know, that, by that I mean, right, they will take much longer, right, for China to catch up with the United States, right? And that hopefully will generate additional incentives for both sides to work together, right, in global health security, especially pandemic prevention and preparedness.
0: Let's close with one last question. Which we we try and close all of these with a question around what gives you optimism and hope in this period. Let's think about twenty twenty four. We know that we're in an electoral cycle. That's going to be, you know, some could argue things are going to remain kind of frozen over the course of this year. We're not going to see much movement in this for all the reasons we've talked about right now. But what's the counter argument in terms of hope that? the US and China can find a way forward. You've given us some indicators, focus on environmental health, focus on AMR. As you look ahead, are there going to be big moments, inflection points in the diplomatic calendar or in some other calendar where we could we could put a spotlight and say, well, this is where we might see some movement.
1: Well I can think of you know speaking of inflection points, right? Uh, Uh, high level meetings, right, uh, in 2024, including the UN summit of the future that was scheduled for September 22nd, 23rd, right? Uh, uh, this is a high level gathering, right, that brings global leaders together, right, in forging a new consensus toward improving our current world and ensuring a secure future. Uh, so this event, you know, aims to mend eroded trust and showcase the effectiveness the international collaboration, you know, addressing both existing and emerging challenges, including, right, the, the global health issues. But uh, the U.S. summit, we know, may not be an attractive venue for negotiating bilateral agreements, right, health cooperation, right, between U.S. and China, right. Uh, we know, right, that September 20th, right, this year, right, there's a high-level meeting on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response, right, the uh, You know, there was a political statement issued, but uh, it seems to fail to generate any significant momentum, right, for, you know, cooperation, collaboration at international level. Uh, there's also this G20 summit in Rio de Janeiro, right, on November 18th and 19th, right. The uh, that I, I expect the U.S. and Chinese leaders are both going to attend, right. Uh, the problem is that uh, we have this November 5th, right, the U.S. presidential election, right. So if President Biden is not seeking re-election re- or if he's not re-elected then he will become a lame duck, right? That would be difficult to carry forward any of the agenda, you know, for cooperation, right, even though they reached a consensus, right, in the summit. I also can sense this renewal of the U.S.-China Science and Technology Cooperation Agreement, STA. We know that agreement was signed in 1979, right, the weeks after the U.S.-China and established diplomatic relations right this is the first major agreement between uh, us and china it contains 30 sub agreements including the health protocol right that enabled the two countries to cooperate on biomedical approach and health, right? Uh, so under the health protocol, the U.S. CDC began to provide assistance to Chinese health authorities in the 1980s. You know, while NIH began to fund the Chinese health researchers. You know. President Obama actually expanded the s ties with China to address global challenges, including health. But under uh, Trump, right, seems to be shifting right uh, more toward protecting and advancing U.S. interests right, vis-a-vis China as a strategic competitor. So, you know, that STA was to elapse, was to lapse on August 27th this year. Uh, China wanted to renew it. right? Uh, the Biden administration seems to be less uh, uh, enthusiastic. But uh, you know, before it was expired, before it expired, right, the Biden administration, said it would extend renewal for six months to determine how to proceed. Right. So if well, that is a big if, right? If negotiation led to a successful renewal of the STA, it could provide a, you know new impetus for U.S.-China cooperation over health issues, you know, potentially involving leaders on both sides to witness by well, the renewal of the agreement. And finally, well, this the other negative event is this public health emergency. Of course, if we saw where well, there's public emergencies, this crisis situation would be, uh, could be potentially used by both countries to promote uh, cooperation over global health security. That's a great
0: way to end, Yanzong. I think we can continue to be hopeful that this process has not ended in terms of the discussions around the, the science and technology agreement, and it can continue to be rolled over a bit as we, as we look forward. Thank you so much for taking so much time this morning to walk us through all of this and all your great work and insights into, into this relationship and what might be possible. And I think we do need, as you've demonstrated, we do need to kind of continue to test what's possible. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security, or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit CSIS.org.